Again, let me welcome you to Seven Hills Fellowship. We are glad you're here. And I think Kevin did a great job this morning of saying, hey, uh, you know, whatever your motive is here today um, in being at Seven Hills Fellowship, I couldn't care less, right? I just couldn't. I'm glad that you're here. And, uh, and my prayer is always that, um, frankly, that to everyone who's in this place today would have an encounter with the living God, the author of reality, the engineer of mathematics and science and art. And uh, so my desire is that you would have an encounter with God. Uh, we are in uh, the third week of a series, and um, I'll just say this. The series is it's just on the life and teachings of Jesus. Um, what's interesting is there was, uh, there, there was a, a huge demographic study that was done a couple of years ago. It was essentially a demographic study that went uh, really all over the world. And one of the things that this demographic study showed is uh, that in the top three uh, of each of these different countries and regions of the world that they went to, that Jesus was always in the top three in terms of the most inspiring or the most interesting people. In other words, people in these other countries whether it was in Asia or South America or Europe, people were interested in Jesus. Jesus was always in the top three. So it was Jesus and Gandhi or maybe Buddha. In Germany, David Hasselhoff made the top three, and that was the one oddity. Um, But Jesus was always up there, right? And so what's interesting to me and to you and to the rest of the world is is that uh, there are a lot of people that don't like Christianity. In fact, the, uh, the same research showed that when people were asked about Christianity, people were really suspicious. And they thought about things like the Crusades when they thought about Christianity, you know, rightfully so. And they thought about um, the way that Christians have been involved in uh, politics and oftentimes have demeaned people on the other side of the fence. Or they thought about the way that Christians have engaged in cultural issues and, uh, and maybe have not been respectful, haven't treated people with dignity. And so on the one hand, people all over the world were fascinated by Jesus, but they were turned off by the church. And so I figure that uh, the best thing that we can do as a church is to talk about Jesus. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Luke chapter 4, verses 113, but don't turn there just yet. We'll get there in a moment. Uh, Let me start off by saying this. Um, In the 60s and 70s, there was a study uh, done by a, a man who was a psychologist named Walter Michel at the University of Stanford or Stanford University in California. And uh, what he was studying in the 60s and 70s was, uh, was essentially this idea of temptation. Uh, and not temptation in the way that we're thinking about it, like spiritual temptation, probably, but just temptation in general. And what he wanted to find out is, you know, is resolve or the ability to withstand temptation. Is it a limited resource that, that can dwindle? And, uh, and what happens to people that struggle with fighting against temptation as they get older? And so what uh, Walter Michel did was he took a, a group of uh, a four-year-olds and, uh, as part of the study group, and he uh, offered them a, uh, put them in a room by themselves, and he took a plate, and on the plate he put a marshmallow. And he basically said, look, if you can wait 15 minutes without eating this marshmallow, then the, the, when I come back in in 15 minutes, you'll get two marshmallows. So it was this idea of delayed gratification. And, uh, and then essentially the study was on which of the kids were able to delay gratification, which weren't. So today we've got a little video clip um, that we'll get up here in a second that uh, is actually a film uh, of one of these studies that was done more recently. And so I'll, we'll get that up there in a minute and I'll let you take a look. You might need to plug the sound in. 
The lady is explaining to him the rules of the test. What you're going to see is all these little kids trying to withstand the temptation to eat the marshmallow. Sniffing it. She's not looking at it. <laughs> Twins. He's not looking at it. But he wants to feel it. <laughs> Sniffing it again. Mm, so... So yummy. Mm -hmm, took a little bit. <laughs> he kissed it. He kissed the marshmallow. <laughs> you think about eight bites out of it. I love this. This lady's explaining to the girl the rules. In the middle of the woman talking, the little girl's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. All right, let's go ahead and stop it. My bad. I think when I recorded it, I must have messed up the sound. Anyway, so again, so it's a really interesting study. You guys have I think Malcolm Gladwell referenced it in one of his books. I've seen it referenced in other books before. But again, the, the idea, what, what Walter Michelle was trying to get to is he was trying to get to this idea of, of withstanding temptation. And now, what's funny is, you know, during the, the filming of that, there's this cutesy little music, and, and you laugh. It was kind of cute, and it was kind of fun. But it was interesting because the findings of Walter Michelle, what they did is they actually followed uh, the kids from the 60s and 70s um, all the way through adulthood. And what they found out was, was two things from this study, and they found out lots of things, but two things primarily and one was this, is that temptation is, um, or, or the ability to withstand temptation is a limited resource. In other words, you can withstand temptation for a little while, but eventually everybody gives in, essentially. That was sort of the idea. 
is you can withstand temptation for a little while, but eventually you give in. And so, you know, what that means is, is you can spend Thanksgiving with your family and you can say, I'm not going to eat anything unhealthy. I'm going to make it. And you're there for three or four days. And the truth is day one, you do okay. Day two, you do, you know, fine. And by day three, you're eating pumpkin pie and, you know, chocolate cake and everything that's unhealthy, right? Or another way to think about it is for those of you who have children, you want to be patient with your children. You don't want to lose your temper with your children. But, you know, on the car trip to visit grandma and grandpa, you said, don't fight, don't argue, don't pick at one another, don't touch one another. And you can do great for two and a half or three hours, but eventually you're going to snap, right? Because it's a limited resource. So that was one thing they found out is that resolve, the ability to withstand temptation, is limited in humanity. Number two, as they tracked these kids throughout the rest of their lives, what they found out is there was an absolutely undeniable correlation between the kids that were able to withstand temptation for a long time and their actual future success as a human being. And they measured their future, future success as adults by body mass index and the amount of money they made as adults and their educational attainment, levels of educational attainment, and their SAT scores, and the list went on and on. And in the same way that there was a correlation between those who were able to withstand temptation for a long time, there was a correlation with the kids that weren't able to withstand temptation a long time. And exactly all the same areas, body mass index, uh, financial accomplishments throughout the course of their life, educational achievement, SAT, et cetera, et cetera. And, and even went to further to find that the adults, these kids that, that had a hard time withstanding temptation, that when they became adults, that many of them, because of their inability to withstand temptation, actually engaged in destructive lifestyle behavior. Really kind of a sobering study in some respects, right? Now, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that if the ability to withstand temptation is a limited resource, that we as human beings, all of us in this room, have fallen to temptation on numerous occasions. It's just, it's just part of our brokenness. It's just part of who we are, right? So you can, you can all sit there and you can think about either your past and times that you've been, able to with, un, you've been unable to withstand temptation. You can think about last night. You can think about right now. But you can, I can guarantee you this, that throughout the rest of your life, withstanding temptation is going to be an issue that you face, whether it's an issue as simple as sticking to a diet or, uh, or, you know, or, or, or keeping to some sort of uh, you know, ethics that you've uh, subscribed to. The second thing I think that needs to come from this too is, uh, is that when we given to temptation, we automatically find ourselves engaging in self-destructive behavior in any of those different areas. Now, when you think about this idea of temptation, what Bible verses or what Bible stories do you automatically think about? Probably there are a couple that you think about, but since this is the life and teachings of Jesus, very quickly we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. This is the story of Jesus withstanding temptation in the wilderness. And I'm going to just jump right into this, and I'll sort of set the context throughout the talk. But starting in verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, 
Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest part of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, that is Jesus, until an opportune time. Now, very quickly, we're going to look at three things in this passage, and there are a lot more than three things in this passage, but we're just going to look at these three things. And the three things we're going to look at is we're going to see that Jesus withstands Satan's temptation to doubt God's provision. We're going to look at the fact that Jesus withstands Satan's temptation to doubt God's plan. And we're going to look at the fact that Jesus withstands uh, Satan's temptation to doubt God's presence in his life. The first one is that Jesus withstands the temptation to doubt God's provision. Look at verses 3 and 4. They say this, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, we're not going to talk about that, but one of his key temptations was to doubt his uh, standing with God. He says, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, again, the context is this, is that Jesus has gone from his baptism in the Jordan River out into the wilderness. This is where the spirit, God, led him out into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by Satan. Jesus has been out there in the wilderness for 40 days without food, okay? He's been without food for 40 days. Now, let me just say this. It is possible to go without food for 40 days. Uh, the, in, back in 1981, uh, a group of 10 uh, members of the Irish Republican Army were arrested, and they went on a hunger strike in, while they were arrested. And in the Scientific American Journal, they actually recorded how long it took these men to end up dying. And they died anywhere from 46 days to 73 days. So it's actually possible to go that long without eating food. But at the end of it, you're weak, you're broken, you're exhausted, you're lonely, and, uh, and you're, you're sort of stripped down completely. Does that make sense? And, uh, and you're, you're, that, that limited resource of self-control is at its lowest point, right? We know the story of Esau in the Bible and how Esau, after a day without food, trades his, his entire birthright. One time I went camping in high school with Todd Lynn. We went to an area near Sapphire, North Carolina. We hiked into this area that's called the, the Horse Pasture River System, all these great waterfalls. Hiked all the way in, and in the afternoon we got in, and we got ready to make dinner, and we said, uh, you know, who's got the food? And we forgot to bring food, right? And so about 18 hours later, uh, we were starving to death. We had to hike back out. I was so hungry that I ate at a Hardee's. <laughs> See what I'm talking about? I mean, that's like... Talk about lack of self-control. You're like, I'm so hungry, I'm going to have, I'm going to eat a hearty. Anyway, so the point is, Jesus is alone, he's starving, he's hungry, he's broken down, and Satan comes to him, and Satan tempts him to doubt God's provision, that God will give him what he needs. And the backdrop of this, really, is the story of the children of Israel wandering in the desert. Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3 say this, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3 here, but also it's in the backdrop of the children of Israel doubting 
God's provision for them. Listen to Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came into the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. And so they're, they're out in the wilderness, in the desert. The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. In other words, Jesus is obedient exactly where the Israelites are disobedient. Jesus trusts in God's provision exactly where the Israelites failed to trust in God's provision. Now, how about us? Do we ever doubt God's provision? Let's think about it for a second. Do you ever doubt God's provision financially, maybe? If you've ever thought about it, the reason that some of you might have stolen in the past is you might doubt that God will actually give you what you need. The reason that some of you have lied on your taxes or on some sort of reimbursement or expense report is because you doubt that God will actually provide for your needs. Some of you overwork or are workaholics because you doubt that God will provide your needs. So absolutely, we doubt God's provision. How about in relationship to our spouse? Do we trust that God really has provided us with the husband or the wife that, that, that is exactly who we need? Not always who we want, but exactly who we need. The reason that we lust, the reason that we fantasize is because we don't, that we don't trust in God's provision. What about caring for our children? Do we believe that God will provide what our children need? The reason that some of us are overbearing and micromanaging parents is because we don't trust that God will give our children what they need. Jesus here, however, withstands the temptation to doubt God's provision at exactly the point the Israelites fail and exactly the point where we fail as well. He was tempted to doubt God's provision but he trusted God in the end. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus withstands the temptation to doubt God's plan. Let's look at verses really five through eight here. They say this, the devil led him, that is Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now think about for a moment what's going on here. Jesus knows God's plan for his life. Jesus knows that he is the suffering servant that is talked about in the book of Isaiah by the prophet Isaiah. He knows that his suffering is the price for the redemption of his people. The plan is eventually for every knee to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord but the path is an arduous one that involves suffering and pain. The plan is the path of suffering and death for Jesus. Satan, however, comes along and offers an alternate plan, and he says, I can get you there so much more easily, right? All you've got to do is bow down and worship me, and I'll give you whatever you want, whatever you need. Now, again, what happens when we doubt God's plan? What happens when we doubt God's plan is we sort of come up with our own plan. Does that make sense? We basically say, okay, God, if I can't trust your plan for my life, I'm going to take things into my own hands. And in the same way that those kids ate that marshmallow and it led to destructive patterns later on in their life, when we choose our own plan, it also leads 
to destructive lives. Or if we, do, if we doubt God's plan for our lives, we look to somebody else that does have a plan, and instead of plus trusting in God, we trust in their plan. Or maybe we simply fall into despair, thinking that this whole world is spinning out of control and that God couldn't care less about what happens to you or me if there is really a God that is. Now listen to what the Bible says. Essentially what it says is that God has a plan for you. Listen to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 15 say this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. David has undergone the loss of an infant. David has been rejected by his people. His own son uh, tried to rebel and have him killed. David has been through all this suffering, and yet David, in the midst of a dark night of the soul, says, but God, I still believe that you have a plan for me, and God has a plan for you. Listen to Romans 8. Romans 8 says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, notice very quickly here that what Paul says is that not all things are good. Murder is not good. Child abuse is not good, right? Infidelity is not good. There are all sorts of things that aren't good. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, is that because God has a plan, all things work together for the good of, the, of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. God has a plan for you, and God has a plan for me. The last thing we see in this passage is that Jesus withstands the temptation to doubt God's presence. Listen to verses 9 through 12. The devil led him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered it as said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now again, remember, Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. He's starving. He's alone. He's under attack spiritually. Wouldn't it be natural for Jesus to have thought that that God had abandoned him? Wouldn't it be natural? I mean, I mean... You know, that probably happens to us frequently. There are probably plenty of times where we think that God has abandoned us and we haven't been in the desert for 40 days. And if you remember, the, the backdrop of this story is the children of Israel wandering in the desert, right? Listen to the words of Exodus 17:7. And, and essentially what's this story here is the children of Israel are out in the desert. They've been out there for a little while. There's no water for them. And, and so they're beginning to become parched. They're beginning to wonder if they're going to die out there, right? And, uh, and it says this. It's the story where they, they begin grumbling to Moses, and Moses takes uh, his staff, and he strikes a rock, and water comes out. And it says this, and it says, He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? In other words, the ch- children of Israel were saying, Has God abandoned us out here? And that's exactly what Satan is doing to Jesus. Satan is tempting Jesus by saying, is God really with you? Has God abandoned you? Has he left you here all alone in the wilderness to die? 
Uh, Let me read a a quote very quickly by a man named Henry Nouwen. Now, Henry Nouwen also taught at Yale Divinity School uh, in pastoral theology. He was a Catholic priest and uh, has an interesting story, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and put the the quote up on the screen very quickly. But uh, listen to this quote by Henry Nouwen. It says this, Over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they're part of a much larger temptation to self-rejection. So he's saying the real issue is self-rejection. When we have, when we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. So essentially what he's saying is the reason that we pursue success, popularity, and power is in order to counteract these voices within us that tell us that we're worthless and unlovable. The real trap, back to the quote, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I'm rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am a nobody. My dark side says, I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Does that make sense? I mean, essentially what he's saying there is he's saying we, we all wrestle with this feeling that, that we've been abandoned, right? That we're supposed to have some connection to whatever you want to call it. And that somehow we've been left alone, that somehow we've been rejected, that somehow we've been abandoned, right? And so Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and he tempts Jesus to despair. He tempts Jesus to doubt that God is truly with him. He wants Jesus to think that somehow God has abandoned him, right? And at precisely the places where the children of Israel failed, Jesus succeeded in trusting that God would never leave him and that God would never forsake him. We need to hear that ourselves today. Now, let me say this really quickly. Usually this text, when it's preached, it's preached as a story where Jesus models or exemplifies how we should overcome temptation, right? And so what people frequently say, and they're right, is that we're supposed to quote Scripture back to Satan when you're tempted. And that's not a bad idea at all, but it's not the main idea of this passage. The point of this passage is not that Jesus is our model or that he's our example, but rather that he is our substitute. He did what you could not do yourself. He withstood temptation for you. Remember the gospel, it's not good advice, it's good news. And the good news is that Jesus obeyed precisely where Moses disobeyed. Jesus obeyed precisely where the children of Israel disobeyed. Jesus obeyed precisely where Adam and Eve disobeyed. He's obeyed at every point for you and for me as well, right? The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. It's that Jesus is our substitute. It's that Jesus did everything that you couldn't do and won't ever be able to do. He obeyed all the the requirements and the commands of the law so that when we trust in Jesus alone as our Savior and as our substitute, we're declared righteous before God, not because we've earned God's affection, but rather because 
God has thrown us the life raft of his son Jesus, and we grasped onto it, and we said, my only hope is in your son Jesus. Listen very quickly to the words of C.S. Lewis, and we'll let him close us out. C.S. Lewis had this to say about temptation. No man knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation knows how, know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. What C.S. Lewis is saying there, what this passage is teaching us, is it's not about us and our ability to withstand temptation. It's about Jesus and his perfect ability to withstand temptation. The passage, the meaning of this passage is that Jesus is our hero. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, in this story today, we have seen that Jesus, though tempted, trusted in you. And Father, we have to confess that time and time again, um, we actually have given in to the temptation to doubt that you love us. We've given in, uh, given into the temptation to doubt that you will provide for us and give us what we need. Father, we've got to confess that we uh, doubt that you are with us at times. And so, Father, I would pray that we would look at this passage today and that we would look at Jesus and see all the places in which he was tempted and that he continued to trust in you. And Father, I pray that as a result of that, that we would look at Jesus as a, our hero, and as the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so, Father, I pray all these things today in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.